Hey everybody, welcome to Smart Software with Smart Logic, a podcast where we talk about best practices in web and mobile software development with a focus on new and emerging technologies. My name is Justice Even, and I'll be your host today. I'm a developer here at Smart Logic, and we're a Baltimore-based consulting company that has been building custom web and mobile software applications since 2005. I'm joined today by my co-host and Smart Logic's resident Elixir wizard, Eric Ostrich. Say hi, Eric. Hello. And we're also joined with a special guest, Mr. Ryan Billingsley from Cluster Truck. Ryan, can you say hi? Hello. Thanks, Ryan. And our first series, our first series here on the podcast is covering Phoenix and Elixir in production. I'm really excited uh, for this episode. Ryan, do you think you could uh, introduce yourself to the audience? Tell us a little bit about Cluster Truck, uh, what you guys do, and your background, how you've gotten started with Elixir and Phoenix. Yeah, of course. Um, so I am a software engineer at Cluster Truck. Um, Cluster Truck is a delivery-only restaurant. So basically how it works is we have kitchens um, in Indianapolis, Kansas City, Denver, and Columbus, Ohio. Um, you can get on our website or get on our app and you order food and we will bring that food right to your curb. Um, but the biggest difference between us and say um, Grubhub or DoorDash or some of those companies is because we maintain the entire process, we use technology to determine when we should actually um, cook your food. So we won't cook your food until a driver is within distance of our kitchen to pick it up when it's ready to go and it's hot at its hottest. So that by the time they get it to your curb, you're getting hot, fresh food, not food that's been sitting under like a warming lamp for an hour. That's, I mean, that's the gist of what the company does. As far as I got to Elixir, um, I started as a Ruby developer um, years ago. Um, and then I've gone many different enterprise for a while. Um, I've done uh, JavaScript and Node and um, kind of everything in between, but I got to Elixir, I think two years ago was when I started um, really getting into the language. Um, Dave Thomas, who's big both in the, the Ruby community, but also in the Elixir community, um, had a book out um, and was just talking about really enjoying his time in Elixir a lot. And so I checked it out and I really enjoy it as well. Um, so I started using it in production in my past job. And then um, Cluster Truck was looking for somebody who happens to have both uh, Ruby and Elixir experience um, and some JavaScript experience, which I happen to be a weird <laughs> mesh of having all three of those. So, um, so yeah, that's how I ended up where I'm at now. And Ryan, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the name Cluster Truck? Where, where does that come from? Yeah, so um, originally uh, the idea was um, all, our menu was basically divided up into food trucks, but they were they were virtual food trucks. So there'd be like a pizza and wings food truck. There's um, like a, a Mexican food food truck, and so like the idea was like we're bringing all of these food trucks that you might find around, you know, scattered around the city. We're bringing them all virtually together into this one space. So you can, like our menu is kind of nuts. You can get a burger, pad thai, a burrito, some cookies, and a drink if you wanted to. Like it's it's very expansive of what we make. So, yeah. 
So what you're saying is that each fits uh, the the elixir scheme pretty well because each truck is a process. <laughs> that would be that would be amazing if we ever decided to completely rewrite our infrastructure. I would push hard for a gen server per food truck. Which is a great segue into our next question, which is, you know, can you give us a quick overview of the projects that you have in production right now? Yeah, so there's two main ones, um, one that was made before I arrived and then the one that I've been building for the past several months. So the first one, we use Phoenix's channels to provide real-time information about your order. So once your order is in our system, We'll let you know when it starts cooking. We'll let you know when it's with the driver and they're delivering it to you. We'll let you know when everything is complete. So all of that, all of that real-time communication is managed through Phoenix and through channels. Then the new thing, the thing that I have been working on is our Slack app. So it's called Cluster Truck for Teams. And basically the idea is if you're in Slack with your team, you can start an order with a slash command. And it will give you all the information about who's on the order, if they've actually submitted their order or not, because sometimes people aren't sure if somebody got their order in and they want to make sure they get their food. So it'll tell you that. And then it'll give you the same status updates of it's cooking right now, it's being delivered, and it does all that by um, just showing you emojis for the different states that your order can be in. Um, But that whole thing runs in Elixir basically by itself and then has a... um, an HET poison wrapper around our actual Rails API that, that handles all the, the infrastructure for getting your order actually cooked. So those are two big ones. Cool. So I guess, could you tell us, was there any reason that led you to use Elixir for these projects? I really like, I just enjoy um, developing an Elixir. So like one of the really interesting things um, for me is when I learned Ruby, I didn't really learn Ruby. I got introduced to Rails and was very young. And the way that I kept looking for things was I would like go on Stack Overflow and search for how do you filter a list in Rails? And it was always like, well, you don't do that in Rails. You do that in Ruby. And like not like getting the paradigms of those two things really because it's just the way that it was always introduced to me was just Rails is always at the front. When I learned Elixir, I learned Elixir at its core. I didn't jump to Erlang because I, I figured I would get there at some point, but I didn't think it was as, as important to learn as much as just understanding how the actual Elixir language works. But when I started learning it, advent of code was going on. And so I just made a decision. I'm just going to suck through every single day of advent of code with this language that I don't know very well. And just really hack on it, and and I just really grew to to love some of the things that they've embraced. Um, even simple things like pattern matching, the way that it's handled. Like once you get to do it, when it's taken away from you, it's extremely disappointing. So it's like every time I drop back to Ruby, and it's just like why can't yeah. why can't you just adopt this? Because this is so good. So I, I enjoyed working with it. But then the other things are. Um, you know, the performance that you get out of the box, the fault tolerance that you get out of the box, like kind of the core tenets of using Elixir, like those aren't just bullet points for marketing. Like those really are why you would use this language. Like it, it makes a world of difference in in how you approach problems and just the, your whole mindset of what, what you have to think about as far as like air handling and, and, you know, how am I going to run this thing asynchronously or I need this thing to, if it dies, just let it live. And like, 
all of those things, I, I, like there's a lot of freedom that comes with Elixir handling that for you and not having to deal with it. So really out of the box, I just really enjoy that experience. And it made a lot of sense for a brand new project um, that we were getting off the ground to, to write it in something that was going to be enjoyable. That is a great answer. And I want to then, I guess, get you to add to that. Do you have a sense of any disadvantages of using Elixir? Like when would you definitely not want to use Elixir? Um, that's tough. I mean, obviously, if you are if you are coming into a company that's already established in some environment, it's always going to be hard to just try and get people to to completely switch and, and embrace something that is different because tooling won't be set up. You know, you don't you don't have any of that infrastructure that is around any new language that you want to introduce. I've been through this where I worked previously before Cluster Truck. I was kind of the person that was always introducing new things and forcing people to adopt new practices. And I could get away with it because I was a senior engineer. And so I kind of, that was part of my responsibility. So like we went through that with Node, we went through it with Go, and we went through it with Ruby, we went through it with Elixir. And like there's pain involved every single time you do that. So if, if you're not already set up to do it, then you need a really good use case as to why this is going to make things better than, say, your Ruby API that you're running right now. But thankfully, I came to a company that had already embraced Elixir, so it was not hard at all to get people on board. <laughs> I wanted to stay on this question for a minute because I heard you just mention that you were doing work in Node and Go. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but my impression is that the sort of new era of web development is is moving beyond like Ruby and Rails and, and you know sort of the old guard of, of web application technologies and now moving towards more like Node, Go, and Elixir as being sort of the cutting edge. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on comparing those. I, I mean, I still think, I mean, I know the, the prevailing narrative around Ruby is that it's on its way out. I still think Ruby has its place in the world. I don't think there's anything wrong with Ruby's language. I think what Ruby has always struggled with whether it's real or perceived is a performance issue and, and is a scaling issue. And like the, the things that where Ruby never really was built to be a powerhouse in is still places that I think they still have problems. And and there's some vision for in the future, Ruby tackling those problems in an interesting way. And I think that's something to keep an eye out for. But I mean, there's still people writing applications in PHP and, and it works for them. And so I, I don't know. I don't think, I think we're almost past this idea of, oh, well, that language is just going to die. I definitely don't think that Ruby is that popular. I think Elixir is far less popular than even Ruby is. I mean, obviously Node is huge because it allows a lot of people to take knowledge that they learn doing front-end applications and, and sort of apply that to back-end. There's still differences very much between front-end development and back-end development that is not one-to-one. -one. But I think that's alluring for people. I think when you can say, I just want a JavaScript developer and assume they will do everything, that as a hiring manager, that is something that you want to. One of the most popular languages in the world, C Sharp is used by enterprise companies all over the place. Like these languages just keep going. People are still writing C++, making games in Unity. So like, or in Unreal, sorry. So as I, long I don't as, know. Uh, as long as Cold Fusion is dead, I think we're all happy. <laughs> yeah. Is Cold Fusion dead? Probably not. There's, Cold probably Fusion some, anymore? there's probably some guy out there who still loves it and he gets paid a ton of money because he's... Yeah. My personal Bot site's leader. a cold fusion site. No, I'm kidding. That would be awful. Let's move on. I want to talk about uh, uh, some of the like system level uh, architecture things. So, like, can you talk a little bit about your hosting environment where you're where you're hosting your Elixir applications? 
Yeah, so all of all of our infrastructure is on AWS. So we use Salt to basically configure our entire environment. So what's nice is, um, and this is all work that um, my coworkers, my boss, Dan McFadden, and all the people who came before me, they set all this up. But it, it's pretty genius in that we can take down the entire production environment and then with one, one command, bring it all back up and, and configure it all. So it's very... Um, now, now, have you tried that? <laughs> Yes, we have. There was an incident at some point where somebody accidentally destroyed something in production and they had to actually recreate the environment in a, in a matter of hours and it worked. So awesome. it's always good. And we actually just did a bunch of updates too recently. And the way that we did that was to set up new environments and then do switch over. So yeah, we, we thankfully we know that it actually works because that is always the thing. You know, you, you do the backups, but if you never actually test them, then when when time comes, you're screwed. But so yeah, so and then everything is deployed with Docker containers. So the Elixir app that I work on is just built into a Docker container deployed with salt out to one of our, our nodes that sits in in AWS on an ECT server. Cool. So how, how exactly does, I guess, salt do the deployments? Like, is it similar to, you mentioned you're from Ruby, like, is it similar to what Capistrano does? Um, no, because what we're basically doing is so we have a built we have a Jenkins build server. So when you commit and push the master, Jenkins will build the Docker image and publish that to our Docker repository. And then when you do a salt deploy, you're basically saying, I want this build number, which is linked to a tag for that Docker container. It'll pull down that Docker container on that server and then um, start up the new container and bring down an old one if it needs to. So it's really just con it's just controlling what containers are running through Docker at any given time. So we, we have those, basically there's just a big versions list that will say API is on this version, consumer is on this version, all that stuff. And so then when we deploy it, it'll just go and look up those Docker containers. So it's not, it's not using any of the, I don't know what, I, I guess, cooler features of like Elixir releases which I've done on side projects. We just didn't do it on this one because the way that we needed to get it up, we just didn't have time to really mess with all that and make sure that everything was going to work the way that we wanted it to. So this is just really doing a very simple build the container, run the the actual Elixir script as the execution point for the Docker container and starting it up. Cool. Yeah, definitely going with, with what you know is better than uh, yeah, what you know and what you know works. <laughs> yeah. Is. So I, I did just good. do a side project that used distillery and um, and actually used distillery to both build in a Docker container and then run the the binaries that it compiled in a Docker container as well. And it worked yeah. well. So, um, but I would rather cut my teeth on something that has zero zero <laughs> customer uh, impact than, yeah. than do it that way. So, maybe yeah, I, I, yeah, I have a, a similar side project that I like to to toy around with new things in where. If I accidentally take down production because my OpenSSL versions were different, uh, then uh, it's all well because no yeah. one was using it. <laughs> cool. I guess to continue with the deployment theme, so you, you guys aren't using in, uh, Kubernetes, the new buzzword? No, I have I have looked into it myself personally, um, but that would be that would involve a really big refactor of yeah. basically our own whole uh, deploy, deployment infrastructure. So yeah, I don't know I don't know what that would be like, um, but I am interested in that. I've also lots uh, of YAML. Yeah, lots of YAML. <laughs> I've uh, I've done some work with Docker Swarm as well, which is kind of in a similar vein. Yeah, but yeah, I I think. There's probably some things that we could gain from that, especially just being more 
dynamic in, in what nodes are, are running with what services on them and being able to bring those up and down um, as we need. But we, we really haven't had any issues with that. I think it, it would be more like if we needed like cost saving measures to not run as many nodes as we run currently, but it hasn't been a problem for us. So we haven't really been forced to look into it. Cool. So when you do a deploy, are you able to get any kind of zero downtime deploy? No, but thankfully, like with our application, like we we run in such a way that like there are actual fixed business hours. Like our kitchens are only open for so long right. every single day. So like we have very nice big windows where we can do deploys <laughs> and nobody cares if it goes down because they're not ordering food. So. Yeah, it's it's nice not to. We don't really have to worry about that. But yeah, we have we have not had to look into it. I've I've read about it, but not felt the need to invest the time to start doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, cool. So I guess the next next thing would um, would be: Do you do any kind of clustering for for these uh, Elixir process or nodes? Yes. So um, I am using LibCluster and using their EPMD strategy. So. Basically, what happens is when we build the Docker containers and do the salt deploy, salt will set an environment variable that basically says this is what your your node address is. And then when the Elixir application starts up, it just looks for that list of nodes that it can pull off and then it will connect to all of them through UPMD. And so then that keeps the all of the nodes connected in one cluster. And then... Once we have them connected, when we start a new order status process, we use a dynamic supervisor to start those. And so we're using Swarm to basically manage how those get deployed across the cluster. So Swarm will start it on, let's say, node one and broadcast out to all the remaining nodes. Hey, I'm bringing up this process. Here's the initial configuration, the initial state for it. So then if node one dies, then node two through five could bring it up and, and get it started again. Um, so that that's nice because we have had, you know, you'll have a node go down every once in a while, but it keeps the updates going in Slack so that um, people aren't freaking out about where their food is. And people yeah. do freak out when they're hungry. So <laughs> always, always a risk. Cool. So how does uh, Elixir compare to any of the previous environments that you've done in terms of like response time, throughput, jobs per hour type of thing? It's hard to say on, on this project, but I mean, just, I guess, anecdotally, it's much faster. I mean, especially even on like this doesn't have a huge Phoenix component to it. It Phoenix is only uh, honestly we we could get away with not using it, but it's just in there for a couple of instances where they need to interact with with an actual web UI. But for the most part, everything's happening through Slack, and so Slack is really our bottleneck. Like mm. our bottleneck is not our process; it's theirs. Yeah, and, and their response time from when you put in a, a slash command because that has to bounce to their servers where they do the lookup and then bounce it back over to our servers. And then we have to send something back to them. And so we're just doing a lot of a lot of back and forth between Slack. And so that tends to be our big bottleneck. But with my side project, it's just much faster. Like I've actually built this side project in Rails last year. I rebuilt it in Phoenix this year. And it's it's just much faster. And I can actually get away with I think one of my favorite things is I write less JavaScript because <laughs> page loads are so fast that I don't need to do a lot of asynchronous page loading. I can just have somebody click a button and something happens. And so awesome. 
you kind of get rid of that need to do. I mean, it's I still did write JavaScript because there's a real time component to it, but it is nice to not have to worry about that as much. It kind of feels like the the good old days of doing web work. But. We'll see how long that lasts. Let's move on to some of the uh, sort of like lower level, like more language level stuff. I'm curious how you're solving background task processing in your current applications. Um, so, so I, I guess the best comparison is so our Rails API is doing a bunch of sidekick workers. There's a bunch of jobs that kick off. They're all managed through Redis. So you've got you've got Rails sitting over here. You've got all the sidekick processes, and you've got Redis. In Elixir, I don't run anything but the Elixir app. If we need to run something in the background, I just run it in a task or I'll run it in its own gen server. But I mean, I think that maybe is one of the most beautiful things, especially this project. So this is an umbrella app and this umbrella app has, I think it's seven different applications that run in it. And so all of those are getting started up, up as part of this one supervision tree. And it's it's all just nicely managed. And I don't have to worry about that. Like, the, the VM is taking care of all of the work that I would normally have to do outside of my own process, and I don't have to, to, to handle that. So it's it makes deployments a lot easier. It makes our dependencies are a lot less. Um, all of those things are just uh, a huge help. So, yeah, it's just tasks and gen servers, which are tasks. <laughs> so, yeah. Cool. So we've heard we've heard uh, a bit of the libraries you've been using so far, like Phoenix um, and HTTP Poison. Are there any other integral ones that you've been using? I'm using um, Opus, which is a basically like a pipeline framework. A lot. It's it's really like a a, a pretty wrapper around um, reduce while, where you can basically give it steps that you want to be a part of this process, this pipeline. And then, so that will take in an initial state and then every single every single step that you're giving it is doing some work on that state. And then at the end, you get whatever that result is. But along the way, you get um, things like uh, retry logic where you can specify how many times you want to retry a step, what kind of back off you want to do as you're retrying that step. Um, you can put checks in. So if a check fails, you'll just halt the pipeline immediately. You can do side effects rather easily. So those are basically just running those. It's basically like running in a task, but it's just the way that it's laid out. What's nice is I can have any of the people who do uh, Ruby development on our team pop into one of these pipelines and it's it's a well-documented, here's what steps are going to happen in order for this thing to get processed. And so before, I, I when I initially wrote it, it was a lot of, um, you know, with this, with this, with this, with this, if that, with this, like it was a little bit harder to figure out what the steps were and where the failure points were. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from people on the team who are not, uh, they wouldn't consider themselves primarily Elixir devs that say that that's really helpful for them just to get an idea of what's going on um, in those. So I, I, Opus Pipeline, is it's a cool it's a cool framework, a cool library that um, I've enjoyed a lot. But yeah, besides that, um, nothing that I don't think a lot of Elixir devs have to get kicked into. I still have to use Timex. I mean, it's just, we do a lot of stuff with, with time zones and um, that support is only just now starting to land in in Elixir core. Um, and even then it's only supporting UTC databases. And so we need that, the full time zone support that we get for that because we have kitchens in yeah. multiple time zones. That's fun. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so we've, we've heard a bit about the integration with Slack. Um, do you guys inter integrate with anything else or is it just Slack? No, we so we integrate with Slack as our main one. Um, we actually integrate with ourselves. So there's an integration into our own API. Then we also integrate, we have um, another API wrapper around segment that we use for event tracking. Um, we have another API uh, wrapper around Google Maps so that we can get things like that um, uh, long for your address. So when you're creating a new team, you give us address. We need to convert that to latitude and longitude. So we use the Google Maps API in order to do that. I'm trying to think if there's one that I'm missing. We also have one of the applications is basically a um, Phoenix Channels consumer. So we consume our own real-time service um, that's putting out wait times because we will let you know when you start an order. There's a wait time of you know 15 to 20 minutes. Um, and in order to get that, we have a, it's, it's a WebSocket, WebSocket yeah, um, yeah, application that's consuming that and pumping all that data back into the, the main application. So, yeah, a lot, we do a lot of integrations with, with other things. And that's that was the chief reason why we did uh, or why I chose to do an Umbrella app is just because um, I saw in the future I could very easily grab the segment app or grab the cluster truck app or any of those and pull them out of the umbrella and dump them into a new one and they'll work. They're, they're, you know, they kind of, um, it's very, it's very functional in that way. Um, they could just all be in one application and just be under the lib directory and it would work just fine because we don't actually do separate releases per application. We deploy the umbrella as just one yeah. giant application, but um, but I do like that ability of being able to lift those out and having clear boundaries between that and the Slack part of the application. Mm. I would love to dive into the umbrella architecture a little bit more, but I don't think today is the day. I do want to move <laughs> on to our last uh, set of questions here. I'm curious, do you have a story, Ryan, of a time where Elixir saved the day in a production environment? Hmm. Um, I don't know that I have one where it specifically saved a day. Um, I think the biggest the biggest testament I can give to Elixir is I was on vacation. And every time I go on vacation, it seems to be the one time that this thing wants to break. Um, but I was on vacation and I was I was I was off the grid for, for a period of time. Um, and so people from my team just jumped into it, trying to figure out what was wrong and trying to fix the problem. And all I heard when I came back was, wow, Elixir is really nice to, to get into and develop with. Like I was able to figure it out just like looking at it and it all made sense to me. And like, to me that, I feel like that's just, that's, you know, being able to read the code and not have it be just a huge mystery of like, what is like the only thing I've ever had to explain to them is what a pipe operator is. And like, once you get what that is, then you're just like, well, this is really easy to read. And, you know, it continues that tradition of like using method names that make sense and explain what it's going to do. And I don't know, it, it's, there's a lot of familiarity there where they're able to pick it up. And so that made me really happy to know that, um, like, I've had problems with Go and other engineers in the past where they're just like, I don't understand what any of this means. And I'm like, no, you wouldn't. Like, you, you need to spend some time figuring out how Go works because it's it's much different than what you're used to. So I, I love that about Elixir. And I think that's uh, 
that's a core language feature that they've put a lot of effort behind that I think has paid off. So, so what you're saying is Elixir solves the one bus problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, um, are there any cool features of OTP that uh, you've, you've gotten to use either in your side project or, or in production? Um, nothing that's, that's, super groundbreaking. I do really enjoy, um, so they introduced in, I want to say it was OTP, it was either 19 or 20. They added in a callback for gen servers that's handle continue. Yeah. Um, they actually made it really easy when you're doing an initialization of a gen server to punt the initialization stuff that's going to take some time, let the gen server finish initializing, and then handle it in this callback, which has been a huge help. We were before just doing a, like a process send after and then doing handling that callback when it would come through. But it's been nice to, to have, first of all, you don't have to worry about if the gen server goes through initialization, gets that send after command put in, but then dies, restarts itself, and then does it again and you haven't hit your timeout yet on the send after, like you can start stacking. Like we've had that problem before where messages yeah. start stacking up in the queue and then your gen server doesn't know what's going on. So this is nice in that, you know, it, it really makes that whole idea of continued processing after this callback is completed. And if that fails, then the gen server is still up. It's still been initialized, but then you can kind of recover from that a little bit easier. So I've really enjoyed that feature. It's been nice to have. Yeah, I think there's also one slim edge case where if you if you register your process as like a global ID and it restarts, there's a chance that someone else was already like mid sending a message as your new one starts up, and so you yes. slip in between. That's, that's the thing that I ran into before switching to handle continue, which just seems so weird that that could happen, but uh, it can. <laughs> yeah. All right. So our final question. Um, if you give, if you could give one tip to developers out there who are or maybe soon running Elixir in production, what would it be? Don't don't be nervous about it. You know, we've we've served thousands of orders with this this Elixir application that we've had so far, um, and it it handles everything like you think it would. Um, there's there's a great community behind. Elixir, there's a lot of Elixir forums is great. The documentation is fantastic, but just have confidence that um, it, it's it's going to do what it's been doing for you in development. Like there, I have not experienced any huge gotchas with going into production and thinking, oh, I didn't know that that was going to be a big deal. Like it's largely for us, it's been a very painless process of putting this into production. And I would just say the other thing, I hear a lot of people say, I wish I was doing Elixir, but we just I can't convince people to to do it at my company and like find something small or or even something internal if that's what it needs to be. But I think if you can show people once it's up, like see this is really easy to you know to get up and it runs really well and um, there's lots of tools that you can use to you know to de debug and and manage deployments and things like that. Um, I think you'll bring people around. I just it's always going to be hard with that initial hurdle to get new technology up uh, when people are used to whatever the old thing was. That is a great note to tie it all up. 
Ryan Billingsley, thank you so much for your time. Do you want to uh, say goodbye to the audience and let them know where they can find out more about you, more about Cluster Truck, um, any plugs you want to make? That would be the yeah, point. sure. So uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm just at Ryan Billingsley, B-I-L-L-I-N-G-S-L-E-Y. A lot of people forget the E. But um, If you are in Denver, Columbus, Indy, or Kansas City, uh, give Cluster Truck a try. Um, you can go to our website, clustertruck.com, and see our delivery map, see our menu, um, get an idea of what we have. But I would definitely recommend going and giving it a try. Um, every day I'm in the office, I eat Cluster Truck. I love our food, so uh, I stand behind our product. And then also just another shameless personal plug, but I do a podcast about video games. So if you want to check out the Night Force Action Report, we will be back in February talking about video games. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us today. Once again, this has been Smart Software with Smart Logic. Join us for our next episode as we continue our series exploring Elixir in production. And remember, alchemists, keep on trucking. Cluster trucking. <laughs>